I was thinking about those words while we're singing them, ancient words, long preserved for our walk in this world. And these words resound with God's own heart. So let them come to us. Maybe you could, maybe you could see this for a minute from my perspective and then I'm gonna see it from yours, okay? We sing those words that your words long preserved, that they reflect your heart, that they would come to you now. Do you know what a privilege it is for me to be up here standing and teaching to you? The reality of being able to dis, to, to, to give God's words and thoughts on the matter. What a joyful, weighty privilege that is. Do you know, church, how what a great privilege it is for you to sit and listen to the words of God? That these law, these words preserved and protected, do you know how many times men have attempted to wipe out the Bible by burning it? It has been supernaturally protected. Why? Because God wants us to know Him in abiding relationship. And we get to listen to His words today. This, this is awesome. Yeah? So, let's jump in, okay? We got a lot to get through today, so buckle up, okay? This is a great passage, and Lord, help me today and help us to hear it. So we've been talking a lot about, especially last week, that the author of Hebrews, and we're not really sure who he is, but whoever he is, he's repeating himself a lot. He likes to say things over and over. And he's doing that to help his readers, and then by also application, us, with some imperative truths that we absolutely, positively cannot miss. And so as we continue in our study, we're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 7, and right away, the minute we enter in the passage, we see the author repeating himself again. And he starts with the word, Therefore, remember, last week we started in chapter 3, verse 1, and the author started with this same word, therefore. And I know you guys hear me say this all the time, but whenever you see a therefore, there we go, we got a crowd, good. But it typically means that the author is building upon a truth that he's previously laid down. He's going to build upon something and he wants to bring us to a conclusion or call us to a point of action, to do something. So here's an overview of last week and that so the first therefore of chapter 3 verse 1 is going to flow into this second therefore of chapter 3 verse 7 and then I'm going to just kind of give you where we're going. So in case I miss something you can always go back to this summary, okay? But the therefore that starts 3-7, in, in verse 3-7, is referencing back to what we studied the week before. Chapter 3, verse 1. The two therefores in a row, and the author is building to a crescendo of truth. It's like we're walking up a set of stairs, and when we get to the top, we're going to see exactly what the author has for us this imperative, life-changing truth. When his readers are hearing, most likely, hearing the book of Hebrews read out loud to them, they would be expecting to get to this top, and they're waiting for this truth of all truths to be delivered to them. So likewise, we should be ready. Here's how it goes. Since Jesus is our older brother, he's our captain, He's destroyed the power of death and the devil and rescued us from lifelong slavery. He is therefore superior to Moses, who was a faithful servant of God, but he was just a signpost. But Jesus is superior to Moses as both the son and the builder of his house. Therefore, chapter 3, verse 7, do not be like your ancestors in the Old Testament 
who did not enter into abiding relationship with God, his rest, that should make us think back to when we were just in Genesis 1 a few weeks ago, don't be like your ancestors who did not enter into an abiding relationship with God because they refused to believe and live accordingly. That's why they didn't enter. They refused to believe. They complained over and over. God is showing them his person. He's protecting them. He's reaching out to them. And still, after all of his efforts, they're not believing. And then the author goes on to issue a warning. He says, if you now rebel against this message of God that is fulfilled in Jesus, you are committing spiritual suicide. That's his point. This this is so good of a message. This is the best message you ever have heard. This is truly the only life-giving message. He's talking about the difference between belief and unbelief, as if there is no other belief. Now, it's true that there is no other belief, but but the but the, the Hebrews are actually tempted to go back to a lesser belief, which is actually no belief. But if you can see, nobody doesn't believe nothing. You with me? Everybody believes something. And he's calling us to a belief in God. And so these two repeated therefores, back to back, chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 7, are packed with meaning. That's why they're repeated. But they're not the only repeated words If we look from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way down to chapter 4, verse 3, there's more repeated words in here. So take a minute, you got your Bibles open, start looking through there really quick, you're reading through, you'll start picking out words that are repeated, right? We want to pay attention to those, those are important. What are some other repeated words that you see in the passage as your eyes bounce down um, the words? Okay, today. What else? What's the, what's the finish the rest of that sentence, Randy? Today what? That's it. It's good. Right there. Today, if you hear. That's repeated twice, right? Some of you have already, um, you were telling me today, hey, we read ahead. Good for you. Now's your chance to shine. What are the repeated words? Hardened. Hardened what? Hearts, what else is repeated? If you hear my voice, it's good. The, what's that? Brothers, okay, we talked about that last week. That was a repeated word. Voice, the, the important word there, somebody said voice. The important word there is hear. That's a repeated phrase. If you hear my voice, what else? Rebellion, unbelief. There's another one. It's this word if. And I say that because this is huge and it's not necessarily in our passage, but it was in our, pa- our last week's section, chapter three, verse six. There's an if clause in there. These things are true if it's repeated again in chapter three, verse 14. So there's these repeated words. He's repeating himself here. If you hear his voice, this is verse 7 and verse 15, then it also is going to come back in chapter 4, verse 7. The word heart, it's in verse 8, 10, 12, 15. There's hard heart. There's hearts that go astray. There's unbelieving heart. This, this word is repeated over and over. There's this idea of rest and entering into God's rest. It's in chapter, verse 11, 18, chapter 4, verse 3, right? This idea of rest again. We're hearkening back to Genesis chapter uh, 2, remember, where God creates, and the whole point of creation is what? For Him to rest with us, for Him to abide, to live with us in creation. Not to take a nap, not to lay down, to actually enjoy us in relationship. That's the whole point of creation. That's the whole point that God created us. That we would honor him in relationship and we would be able to experience his love. Interrupted, right? Now we need a rescuer. Back comes Christ. All these signposts pointing to him. 
But all those signposts are merely signposts. He is the supreme one. He's God in flesh, comes back and says, I'm here to rescue you. This is good news. And the author is repeating himself. If you're hearing, don't let your heart, you want to rest in this. This is true if, don't be tempted towards unbelief. He's repeating, he's repeating, he's repeating. But he's not just repeating himself with words. He's also repeating himself with patterns. What's a major theme of the book of Hebrews? Jesus is supreme, right? Okay, that's a pattern. That's, that pattern is going to be repeating itself five times. We've done one. We're in our second one tonight. Then it's going to repeat itself throughout the book three more times. This reality, Jesus is supreme. We started with he's supreme over the angels and the prophets. Last week, he's supreme over Moses. Then we're going to get into this reality that he's supreme over this old sacrificial system. He's supreme over the old covenant. Jesus is better. He's repeating himself with this pattern. Someone asked me last week, why we're using the word supreme versus sovereign? It's a good question. First one is because it's actually in the passage, and it's the one the passage uses, that Jesus is superior or he's supreme. But why does he use supreme where other words, other places, he uses sovereignty. They're similar. And there's overlap for sure. And indeed, Jesus is sovereign. But the author wants us to see something else too. Maybe even something greater. Maybe we can consider it this way. Sovereignty primarily, not fully, but it primarily denotes the position and manner in which somebody rules. Supremacy or superior has more to do with the position and rank and order. You with me? Let me give you an example because my mother looked at me like, no. So let me give you an example, okay? In the Middle Ages, you had lords, maybe dozens of them that were part of a kingdom. They would have areas or plots of land and under their area... They were the sovereign over a grouping of families, peasants or serfs or however that went. And they were, they were the sovereign over their area. There could be 12 of these lords. Sometimes they would come together. We see in the Middle Ages they would come together and try to even overthrow the king. But these lords, even though they were lording over, they were sovereign over a particular area, they weren't supreme. Who was supreme? The king. The king is supreme. And so the reason the author is using this word intentionally, Jesus is not just sovereign. He's the supreme sovereign. He's the sovereign of all the sovereigns. And that's an important, really important distinction to be making here. And it's similar to the point that the author is making in his letter to the Hebrews. And it is a repeating pattern. Jesus is not just a Lord. He's not just an angel. He's not just a prophet. He's over them. He's superior to them. Matter of fact, he created them. And again, the author is repetitively making use of this pattern. And so in our study, we've heard him say it many times, and he's been saying it this way. In chapter 1, verse 2, he said he's not just a created being. He's the creator. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he's not just a messenger of God, an angel, or a prophet. He is the message God. In chapter 2, verse 10, he's not only part of our faith, he's the founder, he's the captain of our faith. Chapter 3, verse 4, he's not just a part of God's house, he's the builder of the whole dang thing. Okay, That's a theological word, by the way, you can look it up. In the Greek dictionary. In chapter 3 verse 6. He's not just a servant in the house of God. He is the son of God. Who made the house. Jesus is superior. He's supreme. He's not just a better version of a king. He's not just a better version of a human. 
contrary to some modern philosophies and religions. He's not just better. He is quantifiably in a completely different category. You with me? You should be responding to that like, yes, that's true. He is. Quantifiably means measurably. He's in a completely measurable different category than everything else. He is the supreme, superior, sovereign of all sovereigns. It's a pattern. And the author wants us, don't, you can't miss this. And so the second pattern flows directly from this one. And this is why I'm reemphasizing this, because this should build us up and it should cause us some level of anticipation to go, yeah, why are you repeating yourself? There's a reason you're repeating yourself, Rob. There must be something, at least we hope there is, something really important that you're going to say, you know, that comes at the end of all this repeating. And there is. It flows directly out of it. And the author issues a strong warning for not bending yourself to his supremacy. Do you see how great he is? Do you see how supreme? Do you see how ultimate? You're committing suicide spiritually and physically if you do not bend yourself to him. You see it? And let me add this. That you do not joyfully and gratefully thank you. I was a lost Servant of myself until you set me free. That we joyfully and gratefully bend ourselves to his supreme rule. And so the author is using repeated words. Therefore, heart, hear, rest, if, unbelief. He's using repeated patterns. The supremacy of Jesus, consider him, stay close to him, hold fast to him, have confidence in him, put your hope in him, and warning, the eternal consequence for not considering and holding fast to him. So he's using words, he's using passage, he's using patterns, and the author is also using repeated literary structure. We haven't gotten into this. But this happens all throughout the book. He's using the writing and the way it's structured in a way called a chiasm or a chiasm. Some people call it a chiasmus. It's not that important. Except for the fact that it's a really cool way for us to see how deep and how wise the scripture is. And it's part of the reason that we're also seeing this repetition in word and patterns. It's that the author is using a literary form where you, you, you put opposing but similar viewpoints on opposite sides and then in between them or in the middle is the main point. And in the Bible, they use this intentionally because the writers and speakers, it helped them to emphasize and reiterate key ideas and because it's like a lyrical pattern, it makes it people, it makes it easier for people to understand and absorb. And so when you primarily have an illiterate community, in other words, you don't have a lot of people that can actually read and the word is being spoken to them, when you put it in a literary form that's musical and it balances itself, it's easier memorized and the main point is easier to be seen. It's why we like music so much. It's why you can hear a song one or two times and sing just about most of it, but it takes you like three or four weeks to memorize three passages of Scripture, right? Because it's sing-songy and because it's in a form that makes it easier and the point is there and it's re- the point is repeated over and over over. You know, she loves me, yeah, yeah, right? You want me to keep going? Jeff's looking at me like, keep going, Rob. Yeah, yeah. But considering that most of the early Bible was spoken or even sung, the way language and ideas were presented in oral cultures was sometimes just as important as what they were saying. 
And again, this is why song lyrics are helpful or, you know, Dr. Seuss. That's why it makes it, Dr. Seuss makes it easier for kids to read because they're getting used to patterns. Look, I'm just saying that the author really wants us to get something here, team. Repetition, sound patterns, and center structures helps us listen and to absorb and to recite. And the important or the main idea is in a, in a chiasm is often right in the middle. So let me give you an example, okay? Cade's going to help me here, hopefully with the press of a button. So this is Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19. This is actually a chiastic verse, but we can't tell. Let me just read it. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run the evil, a false witness who breeds out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, some of you might be reading and go, well, there's seven things that he hates, but one of them is a lying tongue. And then he repeats himself and says, a false witness. So that's not technically seven, but we're missing the point. Okay, so if we restructure it like it's intended to be read, and often the way the Hebrew is, if they could read, they would get this. But because of the way the language was that we don't have access to, it's it's less obvious to us. But to make it more obvious to us, we'll put it like this. So... The primary start of this is, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. The first point relates to the last point. The second point relates to the second to the last point. You see, the third to the third, and the focus is in the middle. You know what the Lord hates? A heart that devises wicked plans. And you can, somebody who's haughty, they're prideful, they're self-focused, They don't care if they disrupt everybody else. They don't care if they disrupt everybody else's relationship just as long as you feel good about me. That's that's the top and the bottom. A lying tongue, a false witness, and hands that that shed innocent blood, feet that run rapidly to evil. These things relate to each other and they point to the main point in the middle. And what's the main point? You know what the Lord hates? A heart that devises wicked plans. You know what that means? God hates when people work in opposition to him. So that's a chiasm. I give you that easier one because ours is a little bit harder. There's a little bit more to it. Now, I emailed this to Isabel and it had, uh, there what, Cade's going to hit a button and all this information is going to come up and it wasn't intended. It was supposed to build on itself, okay? So just pretend with me that you're not overwhelmed and we're going to work through this and it's going to, you're going to, we're going to be okay. All right. And so the, the way our passage is structured, don't go there yet, Kate. I'm going to read through it and then we're going to look at it as if we were Hebrew people and we're going to begin to see this pattern and what it's supposed to lead us to. Okay. You with me? All right. So let me read our passage and then we're going to see it in a chiastic form. It's in your notes. Spoiler alert. Don't, don't, don't go there yet, okay? Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I sworn my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Now, you can write in your notes, he's quoting from Psalms 95, okay? Which is quoting from Numbers 17.17, okay? And so he's saying, therefore, the Spirit says, this is helpful on multiple levels, but one of the things we know is the Spirit, this is affirming to us, The Spirit wrote the Bible. Okay? Not Moses. He worked through Moses, but we know that this comes from the Spirit. And we also know he's referring to not just Moses who wrote Numbers, but he's also referring to David who wrote Psalms, Psalm 95. 
So the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like they did back in the day. Then we'll go back down to verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, is plural, that means we got to pay attention, not just to Christ, but to each other. Take care, brothers, lest there be any, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is such an amazing passage. I just really want to encourage you. This is a progression, by the way, an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. That's a progression. You could study that a little bit more. We can't go into it. We don't have time. But it's very encouraging and helpful to know how this whole process starts. And, verse 13, we can fight against that by how? Exhorting one another every day, as long as it is still called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold to our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, now he's repeating himself, right? Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he answer they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter his rest because he's mean, because he's unkind, because he gets fed up easily, because the Lord is fickle. No, because he's long-suffering and over and over and over, he puts himself out there. And do you know why they couldn't enter? Because they refused to believe. Therefore, there's another one, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us just as to them. In other words, our hearts are just as prone to unbelief as their hearts. So don't get too prideful about those dirty, stupid Hebrew people. Our hearts are just as prone. We have received the truth as they have. But the message they heard, listen to this, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They were not united by faith with those who listened. We're going to see this, how this parallels in a minute. For we who have believed Enter his rest. Okay. So let's look at this, how it's structured and intended for us to see it. Bear, my main man. There we go. Okay. So if you see at the bottom, this is a, these are like, this chiasm is a little bit harder because they actually are like two parallel staircases that go up and then they crescendo at the top. Or you could flip them around and you kind of step up and the truth is at the top. So if you kind of see there's an arrow at the back, they're building on each other. And again, the author wants us to get something that's vitally important here. And I want us, I want me to get it and I want you to get it too, okay? So chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That corresponds with chapter 3, verse 15. He's repeating himself. Today, if you hear your, his voice, do not harden your hearts. Chapter not 3, verse 9 where your fathers put me the test and saw my works for 40 years, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Those correlate with each other. You with me? Chapter 3, verse 10, Therefore I was provoked with that generation. They always go astray in their hearts. That correlates with chapter 3, verse 17, And with whom he was provoked for 40 years, was it not those who sinned, And that word actually means disbelieved into action. It wasn't just that they didn't believe, but they disbelieved and then they lived out of their disbelief. 
Chapter 3, verse 11, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Chapter 3, verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? 12 corresponds with 19. Brothers, see that there be not be in any of you an unbelieving heart. Verse 19, say, see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And then this is, we're going to spend some time here. This is the top of the stairs for us. You weren't supposed to see this orange part, but this is kind of a conclusion within the conclusion. And so the conclusion is, the warning is, take care, brothers. Right? We've heard this before. Consider him. Hold fast to him. Be confident in him. Hope in him. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart. Chapter 4, verse 1 says it this way. Let us fear and not, oh my gosh, he's going to whack me. It's not what it means. It means let us be deeply concerned lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. So this is a conclusion for us. The whole passage, all this repetition of words and patterns and structures are meant to drive home this point. Jesus is the supreme God of the universe who put on skin and came to rescue us. Do not ignore this message. It is spiritual suicide. That's the point. What does it mean to believe? Hebrews brings up a lot of questions. I do not want to lose you here, but I know this is, this is asked a lot. And it comes up because of these if clauses. Then you get into Hebrews chapter 6 and then also Hebrews chapter 10. And it seems to think, it seems to move towards the fact that you can lose your salvation. Can we? I mean, chapter 2 verse 1 says, lest we drift away. Chapter 3 verse 12 says, leading you to fall away. What is that? What does it mean? That we believe, that we've holded, that we are holding fast to Christ. And do we hold fast to Christ and therefore we're rescued? Or does he rescue us and because we're rescued, we hold fast to Christ? But the author has attempted to help us with these two very things by again using various phrases to help us understand our need to respond to the supremacy of Jesus. Again, pay much closer attention to him. Consider him. Hold fast to him. Make him your confidence. Boast in him. Place your hope in him. Believe in him. Obey in him. Why is he using so many words? Because we need to go back to our belief in Christ, not to our religious systems. We're going to talk about this. We need to hear, we need to hear this, church. The author is using various phrases to communicate what it means to respond to the supremacy of Jesus. And he wants his readers, us, to know that responding to Jesus' supremacy is a radical life shift, not just an intellectual agreement. So paying much a closer attention to him, and so that I don't have to go through the list all the time, I'm going to use the word holding fast, because it's a real good picture that we're, <clears throat> this has got handles on it, and we're, we're clinging to this. And this holding fast to Jesus isn't just some theoretical thing we talk about and feel good about. It has practical, everyday implications on our lives. Yep. True? Now let's consider a little deeper for a minute in regards to our study that the people the author is writing to here in the book of Hebrews is completely different than like writing to like Sodom and Gomorrah. These are, these are extremely religious people. 
You with me? They're not just like idolatry worshiping pagans. I'm not saying they were perfect, but they're very religious people. And let's remember the purpose of the book. Their ability to follow Jesus was getting harder and harder and harder because the culture around them was pressing in. It was making it very difficult. And it was easier for them to go back to their old religious system than it was to hold fast to Jesus. And the author is saying, don't do that because you're actually going back to nothing. You you with me? And so he's appealing to them. You cannot go back to this lesser belief, which is really no belief at all. But again, it's a belief for a belief. Their temptation, the Hebrews, is to rest and to cling to their religious system. Versus... Holding fast to Jesus. This is a temptation for God followers down through the ages, is it not? In my 52 years, in various religious systems, I don't know that I've ever met a person in any one of those places who has not questioned or doubted their relationship or their commitment to God. Or, when things get tough have a desire to backpedal and go, I don't even know what all this means. I don't completely comprehend. It's much too hard to keep moving forward. I'm not even sure if I really believe it in the first place. I'm going back to the way I was before. True? I have also found it interesting that while people will argue for their religious system, they oftentimes have a whole lot of insecurity in it. And I've found that most the people that are most secure, insecure in their religious system argue for it with the most volume and vigor. It's a side note. So whether you're Methodist or Catholic or Assemblies of God or Baptist The temptation in times of questioning faith or looking for the basis of your faith or questioning whether you should continue in the faith is the same temptation that the Hebrews faced, turning to or relying upon a man-made religious system. It's a temptation. In our insecurities and in our hardship, just like the Hebrews it's easier for us to cling to our religious system than to hold fast to Jesus. Let me give you an example. Some of you aren't going to like this, but please let me explain myself. I think one of the most damaging phrases in modern Christianity is, once saved, always saved. You know why? Because people are depending upon that system and they place their weight in it and they're not holding fast to Jesus. They think because they walked an aisle one time or filled out a card or threw a twig in a fire at a campfire, you know, with a camp counselor, or maybe they even prayed with their mom when they were eight, or they spoke in tongues one time, or they were baptized in the spirit or in water, and they think Because they did those things, that means they have an affirmation that they have faith. When they don't. And people are leaning upon this religious system and saying, once saved, always saved. The problem is they never were in the first place. R.C. Sproul says it this way. People are confusing a profession of faith with the possession of it. And that is, in his words, a very dangerous misunderstanding. In our insecurities and our hardships, we want to dicker with other people about whether our system is better than your system. 
I can remember doing this when I was a kid. We would make fun of the Baptist kids. And then when I became a believer, the Baptist kids make fun of the Catholic kids. And guess what? Both of their systems, by the way, are very similar. Okay? When they're trying to earn their own salvation or they're leaning upon the system instead of clinging to Christ, it's very dangerous. And we're dickering about who's got the better system and we're not holding fast to Jesus. True? Whether it was the original reader's temptation to rely upon their spiritual heritage, their family name, their sacrificial system, or our more modern temptations to lean upon the fact that we had some spiritual experience, you name it. Let me tell you this. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. None of that means anything if you aren't clinging, holding fast to Jesus. I don't care how many aisles you have walked or how many prayers of repentance you have said. If you are not holding fast to Christ, you have no assurance. That's what the author is saying. And so what? So we must hold fast to Jesus. We organize our lives around him. We say, Lord, I don't think this is true. I want it to be true. I want my values to be your values. What you love, I want to love. What you like, I want to like. What you do, I want to do. Not there yet. Take me from where I am to where that's more and more true for me into the day you take me home and you make that ultimately true. Yeah? Now I'm going to bring up a couple of words and the reason I'm telling this is because I'm your shepherd and I really care about you and these things come up and I hear them bouncing around. And some of you might be familiar with these terms and some of you might not be. That's okay. But I'm going to give us a little bit of education here. If you don't know, it's going to be helpful. If you haven't heard it, you're going to hear it. There's these differing views about losing your salvation or not losing your salvation. One is called Arminianism. It's an old guy way back in the day. And they named this ism, this system after him. And he believed you could lose it. And he would argue actually from this passage and Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, that you could lose your salvation. There's another guy, his name is Calvin, John Calvin. And so he'd be called, if you follow John Calvin, you'd be called a Calvinist. Some people also call this reformed. And your Calvinists or your reformed guys would say, no, you can't lose your salvation. So here's a person, let's say, who at one point professed, to hold fast to Christ, and now they're not. They said, I'm done with that, and they've turned and they've gone away. Well, the Arminiast would say, they lost it. They had it, and they lost it. The Calvinist would say, well, they never had it in the first place, but they thought they did. They will argue they're two systems, and they have been for several hundred years, okay? And I'm not, by the way, I'm not arguing that there's not validity in these arguments, and I'm also not arguing that I don't have a position on either one of these. But I will tell you this, I am also more so arguing for the fact that I don't care what John Calvin says, and I don't care what Arminian says, if I am not holding fast to Jesus, Because if you're the Arminiast and says, this guy never had salvation, or he had salvation and he lost it. Well, what's your goal then? To get him to hold fast to Christ. True? What about the Calvinist? He, never, he thought he had it, but he never had it in the first place. Well, what's your goal then? To get him to hold fast to Christ. So you know what our focus should be, church? You know what our job is? Not to argue our system. Our job is to hold fast to Christ and help each other hold fast to Christ. That's our job. And again, please don't hear me say, I'm not saying those things aren't important, but they are of zero importance unless they ultimately lead us to hold fast, to confess Christ. I'm saying this a lot. 
hold fast to Jesus. What does this mean? I think Caleb and Joshua offer a good example of it. In the face of great obstacle, you say, man, I don't get this, and this does look like an unwinnable situation, but I am going to do it your way, God. What about you? I, I've done the hard way. I've done my way. You're at a college campus, you're a young person, or you're at your job, and there's a group of people, and they're talking about stuff, and we don't need to address everything that's going on, but at some point in time, it turns to you, and you have to either adopt or own a certain set of values, either worldly values or godly values, and you realize, I could lose my job, I could lose my friendships, I could uh, this could not go well for me, that is a question, am I going to hold fa- fast to Christ or not? Does he know more than me and have my best interest in mind? You're scrolling through your phone or your computer and stuff comes up and you, you're like, oh man, I'd really like to delve into that, whether it be politics or sexual stuff or, you know, you name the variety of things that are out there that we can get sucked into and you start going, man, do I want to hold fast to Christ or not? You know, you're a little kid in your home and your parents ask you to, take the trash out, and you realize it's got to go all the way out to the corner. But rather than doing that, you drag it back behind the bushes and the shrubs, and that'll be easier, and nobody will see it anyway for some reason, you little guys. Remember one time I walked into the bathroom, and I heard Kate, I heard one of my sons in there, and um, I heard the roller going, I walk in there, nothing but a paper tube. But then back behind the toilet is a ball about this big behind the float bowl sticking out from all sides. This unnamed child. What happened to the toilet paper? I'm not sure. (laughs) But all that to say, little ones, be sure your sins will find you out. And for some reason, you have a peripheral problem that makes that really easier for us as your parents. (laughs) But for you little guys, truly, the question is, that you get to face every day is, am I going to hold fast to Jesus and do life his way or my way? Guys, this has practical implications on our everyday living. Hold fast to Jesus. And then lastly, this whole section actually concludes with what's at the top. Cade, can you go back one, please? To our... Pyramid. This is where this ends. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For the good news that came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Church, The author also wants to make this point. If you want to hold fast to Jesus, you cannot do it alone. You can't. We need each other. Your sanctification is a community project. You cannot grow by yourself. You need the body of Christ or your heart will drift. That's what he's saying. These are not my words. These are his you will, your heart will get deceived and you will walk away. This is hard. We need other truth speakers who love us enough and come alongside us and they say, I will help you. I will encourage you. I will hold you. I will be with you. We have to keep holding fast to Jesus and we cannot do it alone. We need to be in and committed to a community of truth speakers. And church, whether that's here or someplace else, this is true for you. But if you're asking a non-biased pastor, this is a pretty darn good place to do it. Amen. <laughs> and his mother. <laughs> I 
Oh, Lord, so your word is so deep and rich and good, and we just thank you. Jesus, you are the supreme one, the sovereign one, and you're worth holding on to. You're worth it. Many of us have tried other ways. Some people are not done yet. They need to, they're going to figure it out maybe the hard way. I don't know. But your way is good and true and right and lovely. And it comes with good consequences. And we can look around and see the benefits of that in the lives of those who follow you. That doesn't mean their lives are easy, nor without difficulty or trouble. But we have a compass in the midst of our difficulty. We have a lighthouse in the midst of all of our storms, and it's you, King Jesus, captain of our faith. And we want to hold fast to you with our whole lives, with everything that that phrase means. And we want to help each other do the same. So to the ends that this author writes for us to hold tight to you, Jesus, and for us to be a community that helps and holds each other accountable and loves each other and does what's best for the other so that other people can grow and change, that that becomes our our highest good, that this church isn't about our preferences and what we like, but how we can be growing together and holding fast to Jesus. Make Make us like that. In spirit, we need you to that end. And as you listen to us and we respond to you and obey you and walk in you, may we um, put Jesus' attributes on display as individuals, as families, and as a community. And Lord, thankful, Stephen Curtis Chapman says, there is no greater place on earth than this road that leads us to you. And so we say thank you, for making that true for us. Thank you for putting us on this road and for inviting us to walk with you, to rest in you. Because of Christ, amen.